The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 50 of the Ascent of Board Games. 50 whole episodes. It's kind of hard to believe. We were going to do something big and dramatic for this episode, but apparently you guys like us doing exactly what we're doing, so we're going to keep doing that. And that means, since this is our December episode, we are going to do our 2022 year-end roundup of things we like. Unfortunately, Mike isn't feeling well this morning, but we do have his list, so we'll be plugging those in as we go. Before we dive right into it, anybody have any overall thoughts or important overviews of the state of gaming in 2022? I've appreciated that my Kickstarter started showing up yeah, maybe a year late, but they started showing up finally. Yeah, all the stuff that we kickstarted at the beginning of the pandemic is finally coming to fruition. Yeah, coming though, there's some stuff that would be on this list if it had shown up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, there's been stuff slowly trickling in. Yeah, but we're getting there. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten three Kickstarters in as many weeks. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. No kidding. You just love torturing Mike with boxes. <laughs> I do. It's it's really my entire goal. Giant in cardboard fortress. Mm -hmm. And I have apparently uh, a couple others that are expected to come in by the end of the year. So we'll see. Yeah. Aeon Trespass and Darkest Dungeon. Oh, are man. Aeon Trespass. Can't wait. Yeah. I don't know when I'll play it, but I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Artisans of Splendid Vale because Nikki Valance is awesome. And in theory, Station Fall may even come and possibly Frost oh, yeah, but I'm not holding my breath on that one. Oh, good point. It is shipping now, maybe. But yeah, yeah. No, there are some people who have gotten it, just not many. I remember them saying in the newsletter, yeah, we got like one crate of them, so we're going to go ahead and send them out, but most of you are going to be waiting. Mm -hmm. All right, so I guess without further ado, should we do it alphabetically, Brian, Frank, Jason, Joe? Let's do that. That works. Sure. I like a sequence. <laughs> All right, so my number five for 2022 was Return to Dark Tower. I really was impressed by the structure of the game. The engineering of the tower, of course, is super impressive. It's not a game that I feel like I constantly need to go back and replay, but certainly anytime I get somebody who hasn't played it, I'm like, you should really play this game because it's super cool. They've got another expansion coming out in the second Kickstarter, which I'm anxious to see how that goes. And it's just a good game. You can bring in non-gamers and sort of impress them with the high technology stuff. I just enjoy it. It's beautifully put together and well-designed, and I can't wait to see what they keep doing with it. Yeah, and a stunning improvement on the original. Oh, for sure. Well, after, you know, 40 years, 35 years, hopefully yeah, they could make some improvements. Yeah, it definitely works way more than it has any right to. Absolutely. Like, yeah. I'll admit, as much as the nostalgia appeal worked on me, the fact that I just wanted to see how the engineering worked out, and then the fact that it made an engaging game on top of it, I was like, wow, this is all just bonus as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they did a super impressive job with turning it into something cool and making it consistent and reliable from a mechanical standpoint. So, uh, yeah, that's my number five, Return to Dark Tower. I'm excited to get that game to the table more. I mean, like, there's lots of bosses I haven't had a chance to fight yet. Mm -hmm. It definitely plays very fun, right? Like, you know, it's definitely a, hey, you're going to get your face beaten until you win kind of game. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, has anyone tried the competitive mode yet? I haven't. No. 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 <laughs> I don't have any desire for that. Yeah, got likewise. That kind of time in their life. <laughs> Who's got that kind of time in their life? Exactly. I got other things to do, man. Yep. Yeah, I think it definitely feels a lot better as a cooperative game. It doesn't make any sense you'd have all these people trying to fight the tower independently of each other. I'm going to better than you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Take that, you. <laughs> so yeah, that was my number five as well. So oh, okay. Easy enough. Well, that simplifies things. Yeah, totally. So Frank says ditto. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> all right, Jason, what do you got? Uh, I think I'm going to poach one of uh, Frank's ears, but uh, Planet Unknown from Adam's Apple Games. My number two. I'm not going to just talk about things. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Frank. That's your fault for having similar tastes to us. Yeah. So this is one, I'll be honest, I didn't even know it existed. When Courtney and I went to Gen Con this year, we were walking into the dealer room for the first day, as soon as it opened during the stampede, mm -hmm. and... Uh, <laughs> 
I walked past the giant line. I was like, hey, what's this line about? <laughs> what's going on this line? <laughs> it's literally what happened. Uh-huh. And they said, oh, it's for this game, Planet Unknown. I'm like, I've never heard of this game. I immediately jumped on the Kickstarter, read it. I'm like, hey, Courtney, this sounds this sounds kind of interesting. He's like, do you want to wait in this line for this game you don't know anything about? I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> and uh, so we sat there. I mean, it took a while. Uh, they were not exactly processing through quickly. <laughs> but uh, we were literally... The second to last person to get a copy because oh, they wow. ran out right after us. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they were selling the deluxe edition, which I didn't even know that's what I was ending up with. You would have gotten that anyway, come on. Of course, <laughs> but I was just, yeah, yeah, I didn't even know there was a distinction between them because it wasn't particularly clear what they were actually selling at the place. Yeah. But yes, so the game, it's essentially at its core, it's a tile laying game. And what really appeals to me is it's a simultaneous tile laying game. Essentially, you've got this uh, in the deluxe edition anyway. You've got this beautiful Lazy Susan that's like a space station that's filled with segments that have little Tetris pieces in them. And these Tetris pieces have different types of terrain on them. So they might have a piece of water terrain, it might have like a forest terrain, whatever it is. And you're placing these Tetris pieces on your planet map. And essentially you're trying to terraform this planet and earn the most reputation points or whatever they they name your victory points Mm -hmm. as you do it. The way you do that is you're really just trying to complete rows or columns on your planet. Where the gameplay comes in is that some of the tiles come in with an asteroid on them. If there's an asteroid on any of your rows or columns at the end of the game, you can't score for that row or column. So you have this little rover that drives around, (laughs) basically sweeping up your planet, trying to clean up these asteroids. And as you place these tiles, you also go up on these tracks. So these tracks are things like you have a civilization track that gets you cards that give you like usually a one-time benefit. You have water tracks that, as far as I can tell, really just give you lots of points. Biomass tracks that give you little tiny one square pieces of forest that you can use as fill-in pieces. So you can kind of complete your rows if you have like a gap. There's rover tracks, which is how you move the little car around to go clean up your asteroids. And then the technology track unlocks unique powers for you if you're playing with the unique power thing or the same powers if you're playing with the standard planets. So it's a real balancing act of, okay, which of these tile pieces am I going to place each turn? I could put this one down because I really want to get my technology track up, but it has an asteroid. Do I want to do that, or do I want to do this safe one that has just a you know a water and a forest biomass track on it? Whoever's the lead player will be able to rotate the Lazy Susan to whichever segment they want to be able to pick from the two Tetris pieces, and everyone else is just stuck with whatever's in front of them. So some of the game, as we played along, was just like, well, there's only one segment that has anything without asteroids, so I'm going to just screw everyone else over. <laughs> Simultaneous play, very, very simple to learn. Interesting decisions to be made. Not really a brain burny, but uh, lots of engaging gameplay. What did you think, Frank? Uh, it was near number two, so it sounds like you really yeah, liked it. Absolutely got its hooks into me. Mostly the simultaneous play, that lazy Susan thing, how simple and coordinated it is, but it's very, very asymmetric, which you didn't quite cover. Everyone gets, especially since I've only played with the special powers variant, everyone gets their own planet, which are different and often have different rules. They also get their own corporation tile, which covers the tech tracks, what kind of tech and skill powers they get, and has some weird, weird rules on some of them. So you're basically pairing two asymmetric things with a pretty simple tile laying game. And so, yeah, it's absolutely addictive. So you went whole hog. You did the maximum complexity with the asymmetric powers. Have you met Frank? <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, true. totally. <laughs> no, uh, it was it was how it was taught to us. But don't bother with the simple stuff. Just you know, turn dive it. right in. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I had never even heard of this one, and then when both of you were saying cool things about it, it's like, all right, clearly I have to look into this. Yeah, it came out earlier in the year, and I've only got the retail copy. Sadly, uh, I do want the extra tiles. Mostly, there's not many differences between retail and deluxe. Nothing worth writing home about except the extra planet and corporation tiles. Okay. So yeah, you can pick it up at you know your local game store has several copies just sitting there, mm-hmm. which is where I got it. And it plays up to six, which is nice. Simultaneous yeah. with no change in speed, really. So yeah. Very cool. Yep. Yeah, it plays surprisingly quickly. Like yeah, there's not any downtime to worry about, and yeah, if anything, it played that many players that quickly is definitely gets a big thumbs up from me. Yeah, for sure, okay. totally. All right, and that was Planet Unknown. I guess we should say it's by Adam Apple Games, signed by Ryan Lambert and Adam Rayberg. Joe, what do you got for us? My number five is Arc Nova. 
I had that as an honorable mention, yeah. Yeah. I like Terraforming Mars a lot, and this game has a lot of the same DNA as Terraforming Mars, with a much different theme. I think it's an extremely well-put-together game. Uh, It has a lot of interesting choices, and I really like the struggle. In the game, you have a set of action cards, right, that are on an array, ordered from left to right, and the one that is the rightmost is the most powerful because it is the rightmost. Whichever card you play, you take it off the array and put it on the left. It kind of shifts everything up. So there's a very interesting balance between when do I do specific actions? Because the longer you wait to do a thing again, the more powerful it is. But some of these you want to do every turn if you can. Mm -hmm. And I really like that kind of pressure in the game. Yeah, the action card mechanic is really great. I like Arc Nova a lot. I feel like... It's a little too RNG-driven to make the full list, because if you are going for certain types of cards and you just don't get them, or if you're given an early goal and you happen to get a lot of stuff out in the deck that meets that requirement, it can be very swingy through no fault of your own. Oh, yeah, 100%. Which is, I think, the one downside of the game. I really like the way it's put together. The components are really nice. There's a lot of neat advanced things they can do with the various maps. If there was a little more control of randomness, I think this would be a real winner. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think when I have played before, the one thing I have been frustrated with is the RNG, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is Arc Nova from Matthias Viga, published by Capstone Games. I'm curious, Joe, what's the playtime like on that? Is it longer, shorter, around the same length as Terraforming Mars? It's shorter, right? That's one of the nicer things about it, right? It's like terraforming is like three to four hours. Arc Nova is like two hours, probably. Yeah, yeah. The other cool thing about the game is the game length is like very variable. So the game actually only ends when... So you have pawns that are moving along a score track kind of to the left and a different pawns moving to the right. And the game only ends when someone's pawns cross each other. Gotcha. One direction is like conservancy... And one direction is like people visiting your park, right? And so you can either move this thing forward by doing conservancy things or getting more people to visit your park. And both of those bring you closer to the end of the game, but like at different speeds. So it's a, the when the game is going to end is, is a very interesting question. Yeah. There is an expansion coming out for this in 2023, which is going to be a lot of aquarium and water-based stuff. So I'll be interested to see what that does. And then, like I said, Mike isn't feeling well today, but we do have his list here. And a number five, I see Arkham Horror, the card game. Not probably a real surprise there, (laughs) except maybe that it's only at number five. But we've talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to say anything else about it now. Moving on to number four. My number four is a game that I did not expect to even look at, much less buy, much less enjoy. And that is Role Player Adventures. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ah, excellent. (laughs) This is in the role-player cinematic universe. It is basically kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book game that is done in cooperative format. You go to different places, you have adventures, you make skill tests. We got, I guess, three or four chapters into the game. Did we get that far? Maybe only a couple. Maybe, yeah, I think we got about three. That sounds about right. Yeah, and then it just... I think it just got pushed aside a little bit because of some of the new hotness that was coming across. But I'm interested to get back to it because it looks fun. It looks like there are a lot of interesting, I don't know whether they're actually branches in the narrative, but like in one of the very first adventures, you have to decide whether you're siding with your kingdom or acting to work against them in some way. And I'm keen to see how some of those plot lines play out later on in the course of the game. We finished, and there are some pretty heavy brand. The scenarios stay basically the same, but there are some really big forks, depending on which faction you're most allied to. And the final is one of the largest books oh. and is all branching, you know, depends on this thing comes out, depending on who you're allied with and what horrible choices you made. All the consequences of your actions come home to roost. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> That's always good. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how the uh, murder halfling either helps or hinders us as the, uh, <laughs> the game progresses. Everybody's favorite murder halfling. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this was good enough that when it came back up for Kickstarter, I pledged to it because like, I'm like, I want to own a copy of that because I think it does a lot of clever things and like 
the story bark interaction is really cool. I like the way like skill checks work and combat works. So mm-hmm. like all of it just really flows well together. They definitely put a lot of really good thought into it. Yeah, it's a little horrifying when you first start. It's like you look at what you need to do to pass this check or defeat this monster. It's like, we don't have enough dice to do that. And it's like, all right, wait, but I have this scroll that can turn a blue die into a red die. And I have this skill that lets me turn a three into a five. I think we can do this. It really is kind of a puzzle. Yeah, it's definitely a communication. It's key in this game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no way you could do it on your own. Like, I'm sure that there's some changes to the rules for, like, solo play or something. But you definitely need to let your other players know, I have this ability that can help us potentially <laughs> every yeah, time. And you have so many cards in front of you, you couldn't keep track of them all. Yeah. With, yeah. So I've said this many times before, we got to commit to a campaign gaming night because we got a finished role player. We still have Oathsworn going on. Frosthaven is going to be showing up momentarily. It's going to be a busy year, guys. We need to get our shit together. I know. My number four is a game called Cryptic Explorers. Hmm. It's by Tempest Tome Games from Utah and was designed by a dude. Mahir Sagrillo. Okay. It is a kind of a, a nice take on that Space Hulk kind of genre, except it is three on one or one on one or, you know, there's one a, V many. Yeah. One V many. Yeah. And basically you're Necronauts going into the land of the dead to perform missions. The game is entirely in black and white. No, it's very striking. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And entirely playable. The game's pretty simple. I mean, we're going for old school Space Hulk here, mm-hmm. except there are four different gods who each come with their own minion monsters. There's not a ton of monsters on the board. And there are four different boards, each with their own mission ways of completing your tasks. And uh, that's it. When you play three player, each player gets two Necronauts. So basically it's six Necronauts versus whatever the heck the board's throwing at you. The Death God player has cards that can be used for one-shot effects or to summon monsters, but it's really that kind of old-school Space Hulk feel. It's really well-balanced. There are a billion different Necronaut options. I think there's 40 different characters, each with their own level-up improvement tree by gathering souls from the land of the dead, as well as their own basic powers and skills, Hmm. and their own standees. It is standee-based, although they do some STL minis. Yeah, I see there's a Kickstarter bust for the Goddess of Death, which has sort of a gothic Kingdom Death vibe. Yeah, it's very death metal themed. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it's a death metal themed Space Hulk game that is surprisingly, they've been balancing it at their game store for a while for competitive play. And I think it might actually be extremely well balanced. Hmm. And it's also just dropped it gorgeous. It's even better in person. They put spot varnish in places, and it's quite stunning. Frank, did you get the bone dice? I did, in fact, get the bone dice. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I got the full kit with the neoprene mats and everything. The aesthetic just spoke to me. Yeah, I think for people who are listeners to the show, if people got a certain reaction when they heard death metal, black and white, gothic space Hulk... You know who you are. This game is for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it is actually really good. So, hey. <laughs> there you go. Cryptic Explorers by Tempest Tome Games. Buy a copy or support their new Kickstarter. They're doing Adventures for Mothership. Oh, that seems like a good fit, actually. Oh, totally. Mothership, for those who aren't <laughs> familiar with it, is a sort of stripped-down minimalist space horror RPG that is quite good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, I can't think of a single game that on my list that could possibly be any more different than what Frank just described. <laughs> so let's talk about Longshot the Dice Game from Perplexed and designed by Chris Handy. This is an extremely colorful, light, push-your-luck horse racing game that essentially plays like a roll-and-write. You're playing essentially people betting at a horse race. You set out the track. You've got eight, I think it is, colored horse tokens. They're, they're pretty cartoony in their art. And you're basically, every turn, whoever's turn it is, will roll two dice. One of the dice determines which horse is moving, and the other die determines how far that horse moves. Very, very simple. The horses themselves have cards, and they will have other horse numbers on the bottom of the card that will indicate that whenever this horse moves, these other horses move one space each. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you're laying down bets on which horse you think will win the race and trying to get the most money. Sounds very, very simple. Sounds not all that engaging. Where the interesting part comes in, 
is that when you roll that horse number die, every player in the game selects one thing to do on their card related to that number. So if I roll number four, I now look at my card and I have a number of options. I could buy horse number four. So if that horse wins, hey, I get a lot of money. Great. I could put a bet on that horse because I think that horse is going to win and hopefully win money if he wins. I could buy a helmet or a, a shirt for the jockey, which lets me either bet after the horse makes it past a certain point in the race where normally you wouldn't be able to make bets. And then you can also mark off what they call the concessions. And this is kind of where the roll and write part comes in. There's a, I think it's a four by four grid of the horse numbers on this concessions section. And every time you complete a row or a column in that section, you get a special power you can use. It could be something as simple as just get a certain amount of money. Okay, great. Money counts as victory points. That could be useful. It could be something like, hey, you can purchase a horse for free. Okay, cool. I don't have the money to buy the horse, but now I can get one for free. Or it could be something like, move two horses back two spaces. That's where the game gets real nasty. (laughs) (laughs) So now you've got all these people that have different horses that they're trying to make win the race. And now you have to work against them as they start unlocking these powers that can allow them to move horses backwards or forwards, trying to get them to win the race or, or in some cases lose the race so they can maximize the money they're making off the race. I'm not a huge fan of rolling rights. Like I'll tolerate them, but they don't really do much for me. This game is just its just a lot of fun. It's very simple to pick up. There's interesting decisions to be made while you're playing it. And then the utter chaos of watching people try and get their horse across the finish line before anyone else's is where it really shines. I don't know what it is about this game, but horse number eight seems absolutely cursed <laughs> in every game I've played. It's like, I had literal games where horse number eight never even left the stocks. You're like, oh no. <laughs> is the horse dead? <laughs> There were questions like we literally had a game where it never moved the stocks until someone used a power to move it because they felt so bad for him. <laughs> it sounds like a roll and write version of something like Royal Turf slash Winner's Circle. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about horse racing games, but there's a lot that just bring out the viciousness in people. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah, apparently this is re-implementation of a, an actual board game called Longshot from I don't know when, but yeah, I'm not familiar with the original game at all, but from what I understand, it plays a little bit similarly. Do you have any experience yeah, with that, that, Frank? Yeah, that pretty much makes sense. Yeah, and the board game's quite nice. And also by Chris Handy. It was published by Z-Man under Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this one, it plays a lot of players, which is also helpful, and it's super easy to learn, and yeah. we've had a lot of fun with it. It's been kind of a, my travel game for a little bit here, because it's a real small, compact box. Oh, cool. Real easy to learn and play. Sounds good. That was Longshot the Dice Game. How about you, Joe? I'm going to cheat and do a non-board game, and you can't stop me. You're right, I can't. My number four is Warhammer 40k Dark Tide. <laughs> which just came out and is effing amazing. I put it at number four because it's not a board game. Okay. To be clear. It's the only reason it's that low. (laughs) The only reason it's that low. I felt bad putting on the list at all, but F you all. (sighs) You can't stop me. It is extremely good. Unsurprisingly, given Vermintide's pure love of the source material of fantasy, they did an equally exceptional job of representing the source material for 40k. Everything just feels appropriate. And for those who aren't familiar with it, this is basically the 40K version of like a Left 4 Dead type thing, four-player co-op versus a horde. Yep. It's specifically pretty much a straight copy of Vermintide. And by copy, I mean like it's a re-implementation of Vermintide. But I think the big difference between this and Vermintide is like Vermintide is very melee-based and you can do some shooting in Darktide. You really have a choice whether you want to focus on shooting or focus on melee. So it has four classes, and they all feel very different. They all play very different. We're currently in a like an open beta right now, so there are still a couple of bugs. <laughs> but like, it is clear that like the story and theme and everything just flow together beautifully. It is a very good game. Okay. What's the main enemy? Tyranids? No, it's Nurgling. It's a oh god, okay, cultists. It's functionally chaos. The story conceit is you are in a hive world. That has been infected by Nurgle, functionally. Okay, so you're fighting it. a bunch of, like, Poxwalkers and, you know, some bunch of specials that are, like, higher lieutenants, right? Like, we fought a corrupted Ogryn yesterday, okay. or we fought, like, a great beast of Nurgle the other day, right? As kind of, like, the big, like, tank version of bad guys, right? This seems like the uh, classic use case for Exterminatus, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. The Inquisitor hasn't said to do it, so... Okay. Why to judge? 
but it is great. It is actively great. So mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't seen that yet, but I have been getting back into playing a little Vermintide too recently, and that's fun. So I would expect this to be equally fun. Then on Mike's list at number four, I see Arkham Horror, the card game. So what? <laughs> really? He's nothing if not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm fascinated. Like we've. I can't remember. Like, I think only uh, Edge of the Earth was the only campaign that came out this year. So I don't know. what. I I mean, I have very minimal notes here that I'm working with. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a small amount of text. Yeah, exactly. For number three, I'm going to put in My Father's Work, which is by PC Petty III from Renegade Game Studios. And by the way, Renegade, I will say, they were always a publisher. It's like, yeah, they do some games that are interesting. They've come on real strong in the last year or so. Yeah, totally. They've had a lot of really good stuff coming out, so keep an eye on them. Yeah, my father's work falls solidly in the I forgot that one category. Because <laughs> yeah, also totally. very good. Yeah, it's a great game. The structure of the game from a mechanical standpoint is not simple, but it's pretty straightforward. It's a worker placement game where you have your scientist, your spouse, your sort of hunched back, hideously deformed lab assistant, and a couple of servants. And you are basically having them go into town to collect various goods, help you perform experiments and that sort of thing. It's broken into three generations, each of which is three turns, and you have to accomplish some things in the first generation, and then a small amount of what you've built up is bequeathed to your next generation. What really makes it interesting is the scenario system they have. There are a couple different scenarios in the base game. I think, I want to say four? Three. Three, yeah. Three, yeah. And each of them branches wildly out based on decisions you make. Do you build a hospital or a university in this town? And if enough people vote for one or the other, it gets built, which gives you a different map in the next generation, which has that building there and will also change other plots. There are a lot of interesting random events. There are some genuine surprises, even just in the first scenario. I've played through that a couple times with different folks and once solo, and it goes in surprisingly different directions, even if it's, quote-unquote, the same story. Yeah, I think that basically each of the three phases Mm -hmm. has one big fork in it that changes whether it goes to A or B for the next stage. Okay. So that would be basically eight different endings, four potential different stage three cities, Mm -hmm. depending on how your first and second choices went. I think that's the way it's structured. But yeah, it's quite cool. So there's a lot of replayability. The production values in this game are nuts. Yeah. All of the little components, the individual different types of animal and corpse meeples and little glass bottles for your ingredients. It's beautifully done. The app is very well put together. When it first came out, there wasn't an undo button, which led to some difficulties here and there, but I think they finally have that sorted out. Good game. Want to play more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I have a number of friends who purchased it, and they all love it. Every single person I've talked to is not convinced that they've ever played the game correctly once. <laughs> <laughs> it is true that there are some rule elements that are not entirely clear as written. If you can get through that and get yourself some FAQs and some time on the geek, it's really a quite fun game with a lot of diversity in it. So I Yeah, I can't remember which one of you said it during our gameplay through of it, but uh, it really does feel like a legacy game in a single session, mm-hmm. right? You, you get all the kind of, hey, things are changing, and oh, we've got a different map for the town now, and our decisions actually matter. And once you're done with the game, you're like, cool, I had a whole experience, and now I could play through it again and get a completely different experience without the set up and tear down of, okay, do I put the stickers in the right place? Right, <laughs> you don't have boxes? to tear anything up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I think in some ways, even like branching doesn't really represent, I think, like how different the paths are. It feels almost like Kareen's Wildly is a better <laughs> way to shape it, because like the paths are exceptionally different, right? Yeah. Having seen a couple of them, they are just like yeah. all the different. There are definitely a couple moments of, I did not see that coming at all. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I love. It's just like watching 1899. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a winner. That's my father's work from Renegade Studios and T.C. Petty III. Let's pause for a moment Mm -hmm. and recognize that T.C. Petty III did both my father's work and Viva Java. And that is weird. (laughs) I mean, wow. there are huh. certain people that just have that diversity of range. and It's, that's, just, uh, it's, fa- it's just fascinating <laughs> to me. Now I want to know if there's any coffee references in my father's work. <laughs> 
also, as it turns out, did the G.I. Joe deck building game, which I believe uh, spoke well of. Are you kidding me? I am not, in fact, kidding you. (laughs) Well, that is that is baffling. And the Power Rangers deck building game. And yeah, he just has a a very wide (laughs) remit. It's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating for sure. So, yeah, I retooled my list after hearing some of this to be Uh center. (laughs) So we're going to get Forgotten Depths 2022, Peter Albertson, published by the Grand Gamers Guild. This is a one to three player, which Mm -hmm. is a little odd, co-op dungeon crawl. Hey, the art's gorgeous. It's got a very stylized, classic, basic fantasy art, watercolor heavy. But the game involves around more kind of tile laying, planning out your dungeon with trying to leave yourself opportunities to stay open and avoid certain walls and things you're not ready to encounter. You get one chance each level to go to the campfire and basically restore not enough hit points. And you have to kill the boss at each level or be slaughtered by it, which is entirely likely. And it has its own combat, which is a weird system of drawing numbered cards from a deck with some special powers on some of the cards, as well as a bit of deck building in that you can get items which swap out your numbers for higher numbers. So you do have your own deck of attack cards. But what really makes this one is there are three levels to the dungeon for each full play, and they're totally different decks with the same basic tile laying system, but extra water or arch or stair kind of features to the terrain. To give it a totally different look, as well as some different thoughts to how to place the card tiles for moving around the dungeon. It's a really clever game, surprisingly cheap for the number of cards, size the box and everything. And the play is compelling. Combat is just brutal and a very different system from anything you've seen, period. Hmm. So you're building the dungeon and you're going through it. So you're setting it up in a way that will let you accomplish your goals. Yeah, you actually draw a card and then decide where it goes. Okay. And it's co-op? You're working together? It is co-op. Cool, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading up on this one because it slipped by me and I was reading a review on it. It sounds fascinating. Like the combat, it's something like you deal the damage to yourself that's the difference between the enemy's defense and your attack card or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it it seems so punishing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's brutal. But it totally works. And it really kind of what to do with your cards and everything. Sometimes you're stuck with cases where at the start of a combat, the enemies will outnumber you and they'll be drawing multiple cards to your one. But then, you know, you'll weaken them and you'll be doing multiple cards to their single later in the combat. It'll be so much easier. But yeah, combat is brutal. And your one-use items, when to use them is crucial. And it feels a lot more tense than a lot of those games for the time length of play. Because this is a moderately short game. You're looking about an hour per level. And you can easily just pack the game away between levels. It's a very sort of distinctive and unique art style. I really kind of I know. It. Oh, yeah, totally. That's very pretty. Frank, do you have any experience? Like, how is it played differently playing solo versus playing with multiple players? Is it a big difference? No, not really. Okay. You actually increase the number of monsters based on the number of players. So it's it worked pretty well solo. I haven't actually played it solo, but yeah, looking at the rules, yeah, it's not going to be a huge difference. It primarily wants two players. All right. Very interesting. Forgotten Depths from the Grand Gamers Guild and Peter Albertson. I guess that's me then. Uh, So let's continue this theme of fighting monsters. My next one was Set a Watch, Swords of the Coin specifically, Mm. released in 2021 by Rock Manor Games and designed by Todd Walsh. This is all Brian's fault. He introduced me to the original game. (laughs) Yes, definitely. You introduced me to the original game. I can't remember. It might have been at a uh, secret board game con. Mm. I can't remember. Yeah, it could be. But, uh, Set of Watch, it's a cooperative game. It's kind of a combination dice placement, and I would almost argue like a tower defense sort of game. Yep. Essentially, each round, one person is staying behind in camp to take some special camp actions. So that could be things like chopping firewood to keep your fire high so you can see more enemies when you're doing the attack phase. It could be changing out your skills, healing yourself for others, checking the map to see if you can get a better location for your next round, or even looking ahead to see what the enemies are coming down the pipe. But All the other players, all the other heroes, are going to be fighting off a certain number of monsters depending on what you pulled for that location. You can see as many of them as determined by how big your bonfire is, and the players will either take their dice that are assigned to their hero and place them on the monster, dealing that much damage to them, 
Or more likely, they'll be putting them on their unique powers to try and do special things like maybe just completely eliminate an enemy or do damage and then do damage to the enemy behind them. It really depends on which character you're playing. The original set of Watch is a really solid, difficult, difficult cooperative game. I feel like I'm at like maybe a 30% win rate, depending on <laughs> how the dice rolls go. And then Swords of the Coin, they kind of added a marketplace and new heroes. And I'd say the new heroes are strictly just more powerful than the original game, in my experience. Hmm. But uh, I've been introducing this one to a ton of people. It's very small. So again, it's a nice, easy travel game. And I don't know, it's been a big hit with, with the groups that I've introduced it to. It's not hard to learn, but there's a lot of fun gameplay. And there's definitely those oh shit moments where it's like, well, we've all rolled ones and uh, <laughs> we have to fight 10 monsters. It's going to be before. bad. <laughs> yeah. It is very simple to teach. I agree with Jason there. It's extremely simple to teach. Yeah, I haven't gotten a chance to play much of the expansion yet, but the original game, as Jason said, is very strong. And I'm anxious to see what the new one provides, but it sounds like it's a winner. Yeah, and we've got two more coming out. Set a watch Forsaken Isles, where the only thing they've told us is that it experiments with monsters that generate doom, whatever that means. Oh, good. <laughs> and then they've got Set a watch Doomed Run, which is a replayable campaign. I'm like, oh, yes, sign me up. Sounds great. Hmm. I mean, it's a very expandable game system, and it sounds like they're going in the right direction. So good for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm always eager to see what they're doing with it. And like I said, Whenever I'm going somewhere that uh, where people might want to play board games, it's definitely just tossed in my book bag because it's super tiny and easy to carry around. Absolutely. So that was Set of Watch, Swords of the Coin. So my number three is Root, the board game. Wait a minute. Well, that wasn't a 2022 release. No. Ah, but the Marauder. Shenanigans. <laughs> what? Oh, oh, all right. right. All right. Okay. <laughs> As was the newly upgraded Clockwork Enemies okay. also came out this year. All right. I'll allow it. And I just love the garbage out of this game. It is extremely cute in design and plays beautifully. It's extremely asymmetric. All of the factions feel and play very different. I really like the new Clockwork rules. I think they do a good job of kind of expanding. So the original rules, they had Clockwork for two or three factions they added a bunch more factions and they kind of retuned how the npcs play and what levels you can give them there's a lot more options about how hard you want to make the clockwork enemies as well yeah very cool and the two new factions are fun I like you know just good all around i really dig this game in general we don't have to go into a ton of it because we've talked about it a fair amount but yeah i know you're a big fan so uh, very cool so expansions yeah. are continuing a high level of quality mm -hmm. i'm still trying to wrangle up players for john company mm -hmm. latest game by cole Worley. Yeah. The second edition. It looks so good. I do like his games, although at one point we broke out a copy of Pax Pamir and tried to work yes. through that. And that was that was challenging to work through. <laughs> it was, it's fine. It was we a, played it incorrectly and it was very confusing when we played it incorrectly. So yes, yes. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's one that you want to be taught rather than try and learn from the rules. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And then on Mike's list, looking at number three, we have, uh, oh, Arkham Horror, the card game. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm sensing a trend here. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, he's reliable. I'll, I'll give him that. Uh, totally. For number two, I'm also going to go off the board game list, although I'm not doing video games or something crazy like that. The board game retreat that we did in June of this year. We just got a bunch of folks together. Rented out a nice little Airbnb up in the mountains, hung out, cooked food, played board games, had a good time. A lot of the board gaming stuff I've been getting to do lately has mostly been dedicated to those big kind of long campaign games. I mean, this year we did a lot of Tainted Grail and Roleplayer Adventures and some Oathsworn and that kind of thing. And this was a nice opportunity to remember, hey, just playing a game that you get into for an hour or two and you're done and it's fun. Reminds me a lot of the value there. I know we played a bunch of Spirit Island. Jason and I played some Fugitive. We played, Joe, what is that medieval Rangers type game that you had? That oh, um, up? Old Tree? Old Tree, yes. Old Tree, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. So it was just a good opportunity to get into a bunch of shorter games that I hadn't had for a while and be away from work and phones and stuff so we could just hang out and do it. So that was a very fun event for me. Would do again. You forgot to uh, break a sink. That was the other thing we did. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> oh, that was fun. Yes, and 
that and buying about three additional lights because while the B&B was lovely, it was not particularly well lit for board gaming. So there was that, some, that, that, that uh, lighting still lives in Joe's There were some floor lamp adventures <laughs> <Wow>. there. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. Yeah, that trip was an absolute blast. Yeah, we got a chance to play a lot of games. We got to get our, uh, what is it? Is it Rococo, Joe? Is that yes, Rococo. <laughs> I still have not played Rococo. Oh so my gosh, the, the blinged out edition. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> good lord. Just total ridiculousness. You know, as it should be with the name of the game. Frank, what you got? So here's my first bid to like score points for people buying a game. Mm-hmm. Lands of Galzir, designer Seppo... Kukus, Jarvi, and Sammy Laxo, published by Snowdale Design. This is set in the same world as Dale of Merchants, which is a weird deck-building game, and Dawn of Peacemakers, which is a co-op weird memoir 44 kind of game. Okay. But this is kind of basically what would happen if Tales of the Arabian Nights were a campaign legacy-like game about furries. I was going to say, you're, you're aiming this directly at Mike is what you're doing, looking at this art. Like, this, you're calling him out. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mike's getting this. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So the way this game plays is you play six turns each game. You don't have hit points. You have skill dice and conditions. You get a lot of conditions in this game, which is what reminds me about Tales of the Arabian Nights. I spent much of my first game wounded, badly wounded, whatever. And you wander around and do adventures. Very Tales of the Arabian Nights, totally no hit points. And you get just prestige points. I think they're called prestige points for being successful at your missions. You can play it co-op or competitively. It's, again, six turns for each game with a three-player, more for fewer players, etc. The structure here uses skill dice for dice checks, and the way it does paragraphs is more advanced. There is an app that serves as a book and branching paragraph thing. When you go to any of the encounters, you will generally make one to three skill tests that will determine the outcome of the paragraph. And it'll be a branching narrative that the storybook app will guide you through. Apparently, there's 300,000 words in this particular version, which makes it about twice the size of Tales of Arabian Nights in terms of text. On top of that, it uses decks heavily. So you have a world event deck, and that's persistent between games. As well, you have a few other decks that are persistent between games. So when you have a world encounter, there's a chance that that event will just go away forever. and You'll never see it again, but it may put a different event, depending on the outcome, into the deck that will affect you later in a future play. Same thing. There are a lot of things that will carry on into future games, change the world, mostly through the influence of those decks and what's in them. But each game is kind of a little standalone, you know, go score with a slowly rotating event pool. So you don't see the same events all the time. There's also two sides maps, a summer, spring, and then a winter side of the board with different numbers on the encounters on the board. Hmm. But otherwise, you know, you basically have one encounter at the end of every turn. It'll be a branch story paragraph. It might be a one from a quest you're on, a random one from just whatever terrain space you're on, or something you visit in a city to like go shopping or something, which can still lead to tests and weirdness just because of, you know, it's winter and they don't have anything. And so you have to decide whether you want to steal something from them or not. It's a remarkably clever storybook game. But again, very in Tales of Arabian Nights mode. The meeples are adorable. I know. <laughs> like The main characters here are polecats, and they're all animals. It's all anthropomorphic animals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one of the characters that I'm playing is a one-eyed polecat. Right, so you've got the polecat, the bird, the frog, and what looks like a frilled lizard. Frilled lizard, exactly. <laughs> very cute. Yep. yep, I had never heard of that. Very cool. Oh, yeah. It's quite good and surprisingly clever. It's also really simple to play. Once you get the idea, you know, it's move two spaces, have an encounter. Do a thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right, cool. I'm always excited to see more Tales of Arabian Night style games. What's the playtime like? You're probably looking at about 30 to 45 minutes a player. Oh, okay. That's not bad at all. That's manageable. Yeah. yeah, totally. And again, if you're going to the full campaign, who knows? I don't know how long because there's so much there. Is there like an end or is it just kind of an ongoing? There is an end and a progression. The first game, you're given an initial starting quest. 
that's a three-stage quest that starts and kind of helps lead you through tutorials, a little bit of gameplay and everything. And so everyone will have that starting quest as their primary objective for the first game. Then after that, it may be random quests, you know, pick up side quests that you pick up off of the quest board or whatever. But in general, you're actually having an objective to go places and do your quests, and you'll get points out of those quests. But again, those quests are going to go away when you complete them, and then they'll change the world. Nifty. So you won't see the same quests ever again during your campaign play. Sounds promising. So yeah, it's both a single play game and a, yeah, it's going to progress the world. I think we're seeing a lot more of that these days in games that are sort of have legacy elements, but non-destructive legacy games. Totally. Yeah. You know, my father's work has one take on that. Oath certainly did a different approach to it. Very cool. Yeah. And you do keep character and items between games. So if you're doing the full campaign, yeah, you'll have items and such that you keep in your amount of gold. All right. And potentially statuses. Hooray. Stay wounded yeah. forever. Yep, totally. <laughs> Can you turn into a monkey and get married? That's the real question. I don't know. I'm looking for that <laughs> one. I'm worried about the sex change spring. <laughs> <laughs> Lands of Galzier from Snowdale Design. Okay, well, I guess it's my turn to cheat. <laughs> my next game is not from 2022, but I bought my copy in 2022, so I say it counts. Okay. This is Intrepid by Uproarious Games, designed by Jeff Beck and Jeff Krauss. This is actually friend of the podcast Chris's copy is where I first played this. Joe brought it to our AFK event, and essentially it's a cooperative dice placement game, which I'm seeing a trend in a lot of the things I like around here. Hmm. Essentially, you're each playing an astronaut from a different country working on the ISS, right, the International Space Station. Each of you is in control of a different system, so power, nutrition, climate, and oxygen. And each of these systems have to generate resources that have to get out of essentially the red zone. Each of these systems have a certain amount of drain that they're experiencing based on the systems that are running on the space station. And if you don't generate enough resources, you all die. So the game is all about rolling dice, manipulating those dice and placing them into modules to generate the resources you need to stay alive. All the while, you're trying to complete missions that require certain numbers of resources that increase every turn for five turns. So it's a race to complete three missions before something catastrophic happens or you run out of, oh, I don't know, let's say oxygen and all suffocate on the space station. The real fun of the game, for me, is the fact that each of the countries plays completely differently. They have a complexity rating from 1 to 4, 1 being something like the U.S., where it's like they have a lot of ability to put down a few number of dice, but they can increase the value of those dice to increase what their resource generation is. Very simple. And then you could have something like, oh, I don't know, South Africa, where they roll all of their dice into a queue, Once that queue is four or more, they can start pulling the first die out of that queue and put it into another resource pool that they're now allowed to place onto a module. So (laughs) it's all about how they place dice, what their different modules do, because all the modules are unique as well, and how you have to finagle getting the correct dice values onto the correct modules to not die in space. (laughs) My favorite one to describe is Japan. Where now yeah. you care about the way your dice are facing. Because you can roll them up, down, left, right. Yeah. Yes. Which is hilarious. <laughs> That's the one that when I'm teaching it to people, I say, oh, well, what, what kind of country would you like to play? Perhaps Japan. And then I watch their heads explode. It's like, <laughs> how it works. Monster. <laughs> it's a load of fun to play. I've really enjoyed all the plays of it. I need to play with the same group more than once so we can get into the more complex scenarios because it's been a lot of here's how the training mission works, but it's been a big hit. It was one that I completely missed my radar. I like, I'd never even heard of it. And I'm a little sad to say it doesn't look like they're going to do anything more for it because I don't know how many people even know about it because, like I said, I totally missed it. But I really enjoy playing it. I enjoy teaching it to people. I enjoy trying different countries. I haven't made it up to South Africa yet, but I have played Japan and it was total nonsense. <laughs> um, yeah, I've heard you mention this before and I'd really like to try it. It sounds very different. <laughs> I do have Intrepid, so just holler. I can always bring mine. Okay. Jason, do you have your own copy now? I do, yeah. (laughs) So, funny story. (laughs) I made the mistake of purchasing on eBay without verifying something first. Uh I found a really great deal on it. came with everything. It showed up, and it smelled like it was from a cigar store. Like, oh, oh, no. no. (laughs) Fun fact, an air ionizer will take that smell out if you uh, soak it in ozone for a couple of hours. But holy crap, was that disappointing. Well, that's <laughs> a, like, that's oh, a good man. tip for you gamers at home. 
Uh, yeah, don't do it while you're in the room. That, that's oh, not a tip. <laughs> Did you soak it in ouzo? <laughs> no. I thought I heard you soaked in ouzo. And I'm going no, no, no. Uh, so the air, air ionizer, it just basically creates ozone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, okay. it'll take the smell out of just about anything. But Okay, yeah. cool. We here at the Ascent of Board Games do not recommend soaking your board games in ouzo or any other <laughs> flammable liquor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but Probably you do you. <laughs> I mean, you do you. we're not going to stop you. We're not going to judge. But uh, yeah, big fan of this game. So much so that I bought a copy when I probably shouldn't have. It's the nature of the universe. I actually yelled at Mike yesterday for backing a Kickstarter I had already backed. I was like, Mike, you do not also need to own this. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm going to guess it's Slay the Spire. It is. It is. <laughs> I'm that shocked. Because I'm like, we don't need two copies of this at all. <laughs> Like in any way, shape, or form. Intrepid by uproarious games. My number two is Assassin's Creed Brotherhood of Venice, designed by, oh, good lord, why? <laughs> you chose this. You did then this to Then by De La Torrienne, uh, Fabrice Lamde, like a bunch of French people. I'm really sorry, <laughs> Titan Noir. I'm very, very, I apologize an infinite amount. That's Triton Noir. Published by Titan Noir. Triton. It's kind of the spiritual sequel to V Commandos. It uses the same system as V Commandos uses. It's a stealth game. Uh, v Commandos is, and Assassin's Creed Brotherhood of Venice, also unsurprisingly a stealth game, where you're trying to do some specific objectives. The game is over a series of scenarios, right? There's a bunch of different scenarios. It's functionally a, a campaign game. There's a bunch of different scenarios. You have a personal character that is advancing over the course of that, right? You get XP and you get better equipment and new powers and all that kind of stuff. The game just really sings, I think, ultimately. Otherwise, I wouldn't have bought both of the expansions and played through them with Jason and Curtis and Mike. The game's very compact. I mean, stuff happens fast. Plays are like generally about an hour per game once you get used to it. And a lot happens. When you kill somebody, it's not, oh, do I roll? It's like, oh, I have a knife. They're dead. Done. <laughs> my favorite thing i was playing the female assassin in the first game who's kind of like the melee combatant and each of the assassins has a special mission where you get an item from that special mission and we did mine i think second over the course of the game there are opportunities to do these side missions we did mine and my reward was the spear of leonidas <laughs> yeah. so normally melee weapons are loud right so you have to kind of make a decision when you're in a square with someone do you want to just use your assassin blade to kill them or do you want to use a weapon to try to kill them and potentially kill more people it is theoretically more effective right like it's a it's cheaper but with the spear of leonidas it's a quiet weapon that's a melee weapon and his special ability is if you roll the the special assassin's creed symbol on the dice which is a one in six chance you do damage based on your level to the square. So, like, there would be times later in the game where I would just roll two Assassin's Creed symbols and do, like, ten damage to the square. And everyone was like, well, I don't know what just happened, but it was really gross. <laughs> and it was quiet. It was so <laughs> quiet. So quiet. The game is super fun. The story is hilarious. <laughs> do they have times when you're in the future between yes, games where they you're do have they some do. super stupid future stuff and we were extremely excited when it happened <laughs> which is great it's very well put together the campaign is fun and it's entertaining and you feel like you're advancing really well and there's lots of fun stuff to do it has a, a fun system where it tells you what you need to do for 100% sync on that mission. So if you care about it, and we did, mm -hmm. it makes some scenarios a little bit more challenging. It's like, oh, you can't use this kind of ability this time. Or, hey, you can't do this until this other thing happens. And it requires you to play a little bit outside what would be optimal just to get the 100% sync, which I think is a fun way to kind of yeah, fix no, it up. that sounds good. So. That sounds good. Joe, you haven't managed to mention the single best piece of plastic ever used in a board game. Oh, my God. Okay, so uh, I, I kickstarted this, and one of the pieces that I kickstarted, every map will have a tower for you to climb up and synchronize on, right? It's sure. very Assassin's Creed-y. When you climb up and synchronize on it, it unveils a new piece of the map or shows you where some chests are so you can get some extra loot. Mm -hmm. It's always worth doing. All the stuff in the chest is really good. I backed it at a level where I got a plastic tower that you can put mm -hmm. on the game board. The miniatures are, you know, inch scale. Mm -hmm. The tower is in scale to the miniatures. Oh, so it's, it's like a foot tall. It's yeah. giant. 
on the board. It is so big, it's impossible to play with. <laughs> like, we were playing with it a couple of times, and I'd be like, oh, well, I'm going to move to that square. Like, Jason was like, Joe, there's a guy in that square. I'm like, oh, is there? And I lean over, and behind this giant plastic tower, sure enough, there are some guys in that square. Like, we only play with it for two sessions because it is impossible to play with. It is too big. But it is utterly hilarious. And Jason <laughs> loves it so much. Oh, oh my yeah. God. It's so Have you painted it yet? <laughs> we had to use it in our game. But more importantly, there is a little plastic hay cart. We did oh, yes, use the hay is. cart. You got to use the oh, hay cart. I mean, come yeah. <laughs> we didn't mention it, but there is a whole, like, base management segment in between missions, which is kind of interesting. You chose the correct one, right? Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. Who cares about mercenaries? <laughs> Got it. We made okay. the right decision. <laughs> but yeah, you basically unlock more assassins for your team that you can send on missions or get equipment or build blueprints of new equipment for you. You can use them to heal. I think that's everything they do, right? Research brand new equipment as opposed to just getting random new equipment. Also, the game has a ton of miniatures. They're all really beautiful sculpts. Yeah. The game has some very surprising things that happen that I thought were really great. From a challenge standpoint, bosses that are somewhat surprising that you're fighting that kind of boss. Interesting. There's a Vinci's tank, a miniature. That's <laughs> yeah, glorious. Yeah. yeah. I would love to try that. Of course, I'm not in the campaign, so I have to find a copy and get another bunch of people together to give it a try. <laughs> Ooh, I'm trying to get a group cool start. Well, first. you just keep me posted on that, Frank. Yeah, we'll do. All right. And then for Mike's list on number two, surprising no one, it is Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm glad Mike put a lot of thought into this. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, he wasn't he wasn't feeling well. It's all right. <laughs> so before we go to number one, anybody have any honorable mentions that we haven't talked about or that they want to cover? Joe had Arc Nova, which was my big one. Sure, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Okay, go, go, go ahead. You probably actually have a board game. I wonder if I'm going to snake one of yours again, but uh, we just started playing. Uh, I just finally got my copy of it, the revised edition of uh, Chronicles of Junagor, Age of Darkness. Yes. This was a... <laughs> Another point for Frank. So, <laughs> yeah, I went all in on that sucker. They finally delivered the updated reprint version of it. I got everything because I lack self-control. Finally started playing through it. It's really, really good. It's a cooperative kind of dungeon crawler. The thing that makes it a little bit unique is, well, a couple things. Your characters all have powers that they can use that they activate with these little action cubes that have different colors. The color of the cube determines how far away that ability works. So, for example, a red cube you have to be right next to someone to use it. So if it's, you know, I'm hitting someone with my mace or I'm healing someone, if I use a red cube, I have to be next to them. Whereas if I'm using like a green cube, I can hit anything on the map or I can heal anyone on the map. It's that kind of decision space. So mm -hmm. you're always trying to say, okay, well, which color cube do I have in my reserve right now? Which ones are I going to use to activate specific powers? And spacing and placement really matter because, you know, <laughs> the cube's going to determine if you're able to reach that enemy or that ally. The characters play very, very differently, and each of you get to pick what they call a dungeon role, which is like a really fascinating idea that they put into the game, where I was the, uh, what was I called? I think I was called the tank or something like that. I was essentially... Defender, yeah. Thank you, defender. Yeah, all of my things were all about helping to mitigate and prevent damage on other players. Another person was like the leader role, and they were able to, to screw around with what the enemies were doing. They're all very, very different, and they really add an extra bit of flavor to your character. And you can swap them out in between missions. Like, I could be the leader in the next mission if I felt like it. It's very, very generous in the abilities and powers that you're given. It's one of those games where, like, as you're reading other people's powers, you're like, well, that's super broken. And then you play the game, like, well, that was really hard. So I guess it's not super broken. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we played a session of that, Frank brought it over at one point, and it looks like an awful lot of fun. I didn't think I'd get it to the table often enough to buy it, which is weird because I buy many things that I don't get to the table. But I would love to play some more of that because it looks very groovy. Yeah, I almost want to replay it. They did a lot of retuning to make it harder from the original campaign. Mm -hmm. So I am curious to see all the changes in play. But yeah, it was easier in the first version that we played. And it needed some tuning. But yeah, all the extra AI and optional different AI for monsters makes it a little less predictable as well. After reading the tuning, it's like, wow, they made this such a great game. And that, wow, it looks so much better. Cool. You got the upgrade kit, right, Frank? No, not yet. Okay. Mine will come with the new, with the oh, second gotcha. ship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's another thing called it, uh, the Apocalypse, I think it's called, yep. which is going to be even more ridiculous. I guess the main difference is the Age of Darkness, there's a whole darkness spawning mechanic where you put out these almost Tetris pieces of darkness 
that are always trying to seek out the most powerful hero. And if it touches the hero, they take damage. If they're fighting inside of it, they get a penalty to their attacks. Enemies get bonus damage to their attacks if they're standing inside of it. It's a great way of prodding the heroes forward <laughs> yeah. to constantly run out, you know, out trying to outrun this, this encroaching darkness. Yeah. My one honorable mention would be Solasta, Crown of the Magister. This is a computer game. It is co-op. You can play four-player, multiplayer networking online, and it's a D&D 5e campaign. Straight mm-hmm. D&D 5e SRD rules, and it's really good. The writing is often hilarious. The game's 30, 40 bucks, but is you can find it 15 bucks whenever Steam chokes up a sale. Right. And it is totally worth it. In fact, as we record this, it's on sale for $13.99. Yep. And worth every penny. Okay. <laughs> its play is pretty stable. And again, dialogue's great. It's not strictly D&D because they just licensed the, or just got the open license for SRD. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not much of the D&D stuff is in there. The game and everything is quite good and reveals how much tactical interest there is in the D&D rules that, you know, I wasn't quite familiar with. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. That's true. Well, as long as we're throwing in a computer game, I will put in a plug for Pentiment, which just came out a few weeks ago. It's basically a, this is going to be a high concept. This will grab you right away. You're a journeyman artist in 16th century Bavaria. And you get caught up in solving a murder. It's sort of point-and-click adventure The graphics are stunning. They have this very medieval art style. As a font nerd, the fonts they use in this game are ridiculous. Depending on whether somebody is a peasant or a noble or an educated person, they will speak in a different font. It's not voiced, but it's just uh, printed out. <laughs> it's very interesting. There's like three stages and... It's it's the Middle Ages, so everything is horrible and lots of people die. <laughs> In the first chapter, you sort of meet this nobleman who's coming to visit the abbey you're working at. And he's like, so I keep hearing about this Martin Luther guy. He seems pretty cool. I can't wait to talk to the abbot about him. And, you know, wow. go from there. <laughs> but it's really well written. There's a lot of different paths to take. And I recommend it. So Pentiment. Cool. And now we get on to number one on my list. There was no doubt that Oathsworn Into the Deep Wood was going to be number one. It is one of those big boss battler, individual character, tactic-y campaign games. And it's beautifully done. The world is amazing. The miniatures are gorgeous. The plot line keeps surprising me with the things it does. As you get into later chapters, it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't expect this to go that way. And we're, I think, not quite halfway through the campaign now. And I am still digging it big time. Yep. My number one as well. Uh, excellent. Likewise. Sadly, we've been playing Stars of Icarus and <laughs> uh, haven't started Oathsworn yet. You should be sad. I know. I know. I'm very sad. Yeah. So my number one's Nightmare Horror Adventures. Welcome to Craft and Match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For our last episode, you sort of threw that in at the last minute because you were super excited by it. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. It's one of those escape roomy kind of, but it feels a little more like the exploration phase of betrayal. You know, going through a house, digging up mysteries that's really designed as a two-hour one-shot co-op as you're cooperatively going through this house and trying to investigate and see what's going on and who killed your parents. But it's a much simpler rules. There's no dice rolling or doing much beyond investigating and trying to get to the bottom of the creepy mystery of who killed your parents with a ton of evidence and pictures and things. So it plays a little more like detective and those kind of games. Hmm. But spoilers. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't say anything more about it and you just buy it. Interestingly, it's not distributed in the US, which is sad. So how does one get it? Oh, just Amazon. Oh, okay. Ships from the UK. And obviously it's in English. But it's designed by a company in the Netherlands, so it has some pretty dark kind of things going on. Yeah, I was going to say. It's so much fun. I wonder if there are any, like, trigger warnings we should put out for people before they go into it blind? No, it's a party game. Okay. (laughs) Sounds like it. And it's got that kind of, you know, serial killer slasher, what's the big secret in the basement? And Mm -hmm. yeah, 
But I mean, are there like particularly gory illustrations or descriptions or? Yeah, a few. So like rated R probably? Yeah, they put it as 16 plus. Okay, that seems fair. On the box. And yeah, it's pretty, it is definitely a horror game. But it is, I think, the game that's most felt like a horror movie ever. Wow. That is fascinating. Yeah. I will try and get a group together to play through that. Sounds like fun. Yeah. If you need to borrow a copy, holler. I almost want to run it to see people play. And, and <laughs> yeah. Oh, and on Mike's list, uh, looking at number one. Oh, it's Oatsworn. Okay, cool. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Twist ending. <laughs> wow, I really need to play Oatsworn. Yeah, it's oh, real okay. good, yeah, Frank. You really do, oh, Frank. Good. Like I said, we fought Raddy, and I'm just even the rules for fighting Raddy are so good. They're so well thought out from a combat standpoint. There are a lot of surprises coming up. In this. It goes places. Yep. Oh, dear. Okay. It does. I will say that not all of the combats work. There are one or two that were a little disappointing, but for the most part, everyone is kind of different and cool and fun and messes with your head. Okay. Wow. Good stuff. Okay. And then, and man, there's a lot of good stuff that's coming up next year. Like I said, Artists of Splendid Vale looks good. The new one from Nikki Valance. Frosthaven, obviously, is going to be a big one. I just got Frostpunk and Darkest Dungeon. I want to try both of those real bad. Cool. I would be up to try either of those. We did play Frostpunk last week. And yeah, that's um, dense. It's really, really long now. I get that impression from looking at the game itself. <laughs> it feels, and because of the grimness of the overall game, it feels it. Which is why it didn't show up on the list. It's really compelling for that worker placement game. Mm -hmm. And oh my God, it's gorgeous. It is one of the best productions I've seen in a while. Nice. Given it's by the guy who did Nemesis, the game is solid. Yeah. All the pieces look gorgeous, so. Oh yeah. I'm excited to give that a try. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I guess that will wrap us up for another year. Here's to another 50 episodes. As always, if you folks have anything you think we missed out on this year or new and awesome things that you're looking forward to or just want to get some input, we'd love to hear from you. Twitter is still alive as we write this. Can't guarantee how long that'll be the case. But there's always ascentofboardgames.com. You can always find us on Facebook if you're old like me. Come say hi. Let us know what you think. And if nothing else, we will talk to you again next month. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Have fun. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. What is the name of this game again? I, I didn't catch it. When you oh, did I not say Intrepid? God. He said Intrepid and went through the designers and everything. Okay. Yeah. All right, cool. I was just not paying attention.